Welcome to Needful King, a podcast dedicated to news, discussion, and analysis of Stephen King novels and adaptations. You can follow our podcast on Twitter at Needful King, and check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Needful King. your host, Vanessa Cole, Stephen King superfan, constant reader, and artist. You can find me on Twitter at VKColeArtist and on Facebook and Instagram at VKColeArt. And I'm your other host, Samantha, also a superfan and constant reader. I like to think I have the heart of a gunslinger and the mouth of Richie Tozier, and you can find me on Twitter at the Sansa Snark. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back to everyone. It's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. <laughs> We're more of an intermittent podcast at this point. <laughs> I mean, you know, life happens. I'm having a baby next week or two weeks, hopefully next week, but you know, life happens. Yes. But that being said, uh, welcome back to Needful King. Needful King meets the Sandman, because uh, today we are talking about the excellent, excellent, absolutely wonderful. I feel like that Lady Gaga gif right now, where she <laughs> does like the excellent, show-stopping, outstanding, because that's what I'm doing with my hands, but uh, we are talking about the excellent Netflix adaptation of the seminal Neil Gaiman classic graphic novel, uh, The Sandman. And it's just, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about some perspectives here. We're joined by one of our favorite contributors, Grant Piercy. Hello, Grant. Nice to have you back. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Sandman today, uh, but because it is a Stephen King-centered podcast, we are going to start with just a little bit of Stephen King-centered news. Um, Vanessa, do you want to take this first little tidbit that we found? Yeah, so um, for anyone who does not know, Stephen King has a new book coming out. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> it seems like that happens at least a couple times a year. Um, but uh, Fairy Tale will be uh, released on September 6th. And uh, if you wanted to go to the Simon & Schuster YouTube channel, they have a clip of Stephen King reading a chapter from the book. Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole thing yet, but um, it's really exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I already have my book pre-ordered. So hopefully we'll get it right on release day from Amazon and I can't wait to dive into it. Yeah, very cool. I need to, I need to pre-order that because I'm going to be on maternity leave and I'm going to have some good stuff to watch and some good stuff to read. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to make sure I get my copy of that pre-ordered as well. And secondly, we have a little bit of news about uh, The Regulators, which apparently, according to Deadline, is going to be adapted into a film. Um, I think that this has sort of happened before. If I'm remembering this correctly, I think that there was... Um, it's, it's something that has been kind of languishing uh, in development hell for a while. Um, but The Regulators was published in, I think, 96, 97. Um, it's kind of a companion novel to Desperation. You don't have to read both of them, but they're really neat because they're kind of the same story just told uh, from two different places, I guess. Wasn't, wasn't The Regulators a Bachman book? Uh, yes, it was. It was. That was written as... It, written as uh, Richard Bachman, and then Desperation was written as Stephen, Stephen King. King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like the um, same story in two different universes. Almost yeah, universe like version. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's they're both really interesting and really fun to read. The Regulators is really fascinating, um, but apparently, yeah, there's a movie that is is moving forward based on it. I'm super excited about this because those two are two of my favorites, actually. Um, but I I will say that I have thoughts about it being a film. I think it might be better as like a limited series. Um, thinking, you know, 
maybe Mike Flanagan, I don't know, could could do really well with it, but I think Stephen King's stories do better as a limited series, honestly. Yeah, well, there's just, well, anyway, I won't, I won't get into it now. I digress. Um, but yes, there is that also nice little bit of news. So we'll keep an eye on that and see if anything, see what happens with that. But uh, yeah, let's dive into our main discussion. You might be asking yourself, self, why are they talking about the Sandman on a Stephen King podcast? But I mean, first of all, there are definitely some elements of, of quote unquote horror, I would say, in, in both the show and the original graphic novel. Um, but I mean, it's also, it's just, it's such an amazing show. And the graphic novel itself, which was written by Neil Gaiman um, over 70 some issues, right, Grant? In the 75, yep. 75, starting in the late 80s. Yep. Um, pen, inked and, and drawn by a couple of different artists. But I believe he wrote all, 75 issues am I right so, yeah he wrote uh all 75 issues there's also a companion graphic novel called endless nights that came out I want to say like a decade after and then he did a prequel series called Sandman Overture um I think only like five years ago yeah. and that one that won a Hugo award it was a, a brilliant little jewel of a work yeah I need to I need to read that one too um, <laughs> it's just it's it, the the source material that it's you know that the show draws from. And it's just really, really well done um, overall. And I think, you know, all three of us have really enjoyed it. It's enjoyed massive popularity since its release. I think in only a week, um, it's now, it's number one in like 89 countries on Netflix, which is insane. Um, especially in this era of everybody wants the next big thing. Every yeah. streaming service wants, you know, Game of Thrones level popularity with things. So um, yeah, it's, it's just something that I thought, you know, we would, it would be nice to talk about. Um, side note, I did check Stephen King's Twitter because I could have sworn that I saw him tweet something or respond some to uh, about it. Um, I couldn't find anything. So I'm not hundred percent sure if he's watched it, but the I did find it. The thing was we, all of us thought the same thing. Yeah. So it was a very Berenstain situation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I do remember he he mentioned that I think it was an Apple TV show that he recently watched. So maybe that's Severus. Popped, yeah, yeah, maybe that's what it was. But which you know. a, another extremely high recommendation. Yeah, I so yeah, I was kind of searching and then I was Googling like Neil Gaiman's and uh, Stephen King. And I did find a really interesting interview with Neil Gaiman from 2017 where he mentioned um, meeting Stephen King back in, I think, 1992. And he said that Stephen King gave him some of the best advice that he's ever gotten, which he, Neil Gaiman, ignored <laughs> for a whole while. But it was a, it's a really nice quote, so I'm, I'm going to read it. But um, he said, Stephen King um, showed up at a book signing of mine in Boston in 1992, and afterwards we went to his hotel. He gave me the best bit of advice. He said, you know, you've got to enjoy this. This is magic. You do a signing and hundreds come. You're one of the be most beloved comic writers in the world. Enjoy it. But I never did. I just worried. I worried it would all go away. I worried I'd break it, which, uh, yeah, I can, re <laughs> I can re I relate yeah. to that, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it was, it was just a really nice, clearly of, that level of success, but still, <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, it was just, it was kind of nice to see, you know, I, and I'm sure they obviously know each other, uh, you know, in, in the world of, of writers, cause they all know each other, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Grant, you know them all. No, not at all. <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to to uh, go to a to a Neil Gaiman reading uh, earlier this year when he was on tour, um, and he provided uh, some really interesting writing advice. Um, of course, like he was taking questions from the audience, and 
always there's always at least one person who asks where do you where do you get your ideas how are you inspired to write and his answer was the trick is to take two unlike things and put them together and as soon as he said that it was like a key unlocking because you could recognize that whole pattern across all of his work um death is a cute girl uh serial killers have a, a hotel convention um it, it, it was just like or, or uh, he read um his short story chivalry which is about sir galahad um per, or i'm sorry an old lady finds the holy grail in a thrift shop and sir galahad shows up at her doorstep and it's just, it's a modern story but it has all these arthurian like it's a, a, an example of like fantastic realism but um yeah it's just putting those those two things that are not alike at all and mashing them together and seeing what happens and there's this kind of magic synthesis that goes along with that and he's very good at it <laughs> and i feel like there's even i mean there's some of that you know certainly in stephen king's writing as well in the sense that he takes things that normally would not be things that drive you know horror and fear and uncertainty in people yes. and somehow makes it he finds that in those things, you know, like I always think about Cujo, you know, right. like, yes, of course, a rabid dog is scary, but like the way that he presents it, it's not just I'm confronted by a rabid dog and that's scary. It's all the other things that then that, you know, pulls out in, in a yeah, person. It's, it's your worst nightmare of a thing coming to fruition. Like yeah. you mentioned Desperation and the Regulators. I have a very vivid memory of first reading Desperation. And that first chapter is about a couple that gets pulled over by a cop in the middle of nowhere. And it just progresses and gets worse and worse until, spoilers, the cop kills the guy who was driving and kidnaps the the woman who's a passenger. And I was absolutely mortified <laughs> because it's such a it, it's such a relatable thing. Oh yeah, traffic stop. What's the worst that can happen? Well, yeah, this oh, yeah. is the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I do love about both of those stories that you guys just mentioned is um, you also get inside the head of the antagonist and find sympathy for them um in both yeah. cases almost like a possession in both case, cases Kujo being possessed by this virus and then the cop being possessed by what that demonic entity so um that's what I love about his stories yeah I think you can get it get some at least I haven't read the Sandman but I, I got that out of the show I too. think there's a lot of that in the Sandman there are characters like John D um who is just a horrible person but you can't help but feel bad for him with everything mm -hmm. that he went through in his life, either in the comic or in the audio adaptation or in the, the show, or even like my personal favorite. I know we're going to get into favorite characters, but man, I love we'll the and, um, and you actually do get some level of sympathy for the Corinthian by the end, mm -hmm. um, just as somebody who's trying to escape like their, um, their, uh, initial parameter like the, the initial parameters that they're supposed to fit in <laughs> are you felt westworld fans <laughs> other loops anyway sorry that's okay um so well yeah at grant as you mentioned we will we'll talk about you know favorite uh, characters episodes you know um but we'll just kind of go a little bit i don't know more esoteric with our discussion to start um you know and and i do want to note we probably have already maybe said a few things that are spoilery, but this is not a spoiler-free discussion. Um, we are going to talk about things that have happened throughout all 10 episodes. So just uh, just throwing that out there for you. And I'll, I'll try to limit it to those 10 episodes because I've, I've got the whole series in my head. Yes. Uh, I will try to just put all of that other stuff aside. 
That's, that's fair, Grant, but I think um, it might be nice to kind of get your perspective on where you think future seasons might go, since you do then know where the story takes us in the comics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I'd like to touch on that as well. Um, but I, I think, you know, like I said, it's, you know, we'll, we'll kind of have a big nebulous conceptual discussion about, about uh, experience with knowledge of source material and like adaptational choices and stuff. Um, and actually, Vanessa, we'll start with you because you are, you came into the show only, right? You had not read the graphic novels. You had not listened to audiobook or anything. Completely um, unsullied, yes. Completely <laughs> unsullied. Um, so like what, I mean, you know, what was, uh, what made you want to watch it? Is it just because everybody was talking about it or? Mostly you guys. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I saw, you know, other friends of mine posting about it, raving about it. And I mean, not even everyone had read anything of it before so um and you know coming brand new to the show I figured well you know these other people who've never had experience with this universe before have really liked it then I might as well give it a shot so yeah it came in completely blind um I will say that I did do a little bit of like wiki searching <laughs> some characters and just just trying to kind of familiarize myself with a little bit of the world so I wasn't completely lost um you know I think they did a good job in the show of kind of laying some of the groundwork, but I do think it helps to understand a bit more of the wider story to really get the most out of the show. Yeah, um, I had not, I feel like it's actually really interesting because we have three totally different perspectives here. Cause again, Vanessa, show only viewer, um, Grant, you're like subject matter expert on all things Neil Gaiman and Sandman. And I feel like I kind of fall in the middle because I had only, I had not read the, the graphic novels, but I had listened to um, Audible's original audiobook recording of, I think it encompasses the first 20 issues. Yep. 20 issues, yep. Yep. Um, and by the way, I cannot understate how fantastic that recording it's, is. It is excellent. The voice cast, I mean, you've got James McAvoy as Dream, which was really fantastic. Um, Riz Ahmed as the Corinthian. You've got Brian Cox doing some voices. I can't remember... It's just, it is Kat Denning is death. Yeah. Kat Dennings is death. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Lilith from um, Cheers is, you know, what is her name? Amy <laughs> Newworth. That's yeah. it. Yes. She's in there as well. I think she's yeah. one of the spider sisters. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds familiar. That's perfect. <laughs> now I'm going to have to listen to it. It, it really Highly is. Recommend. It, it is fantastic. Like I, for some reason, I'm, I'm one of those people where I've always had trouble reading graphic novels and comics because I'm just so used to looking at words on a page from a linear, reading left to right, top to bottom, go to the next page. Like when there's illustrations and stuff, when the, you know, panels, when the, when there's, you know, speech bubbles that are here or over here, for some reason, I just, my brain cannot, I'll find that I've read three or four pages of something and retained absolutely nothing of what I've read because I just, my, my brain just doesn't fuse them together. But I really wanted to to, to read it or to have some, you know, kind of background knowledge of the story before it started. And then I saw this audiobook version. And like I said, I, I can't understate it. It's just, it's really good. And it's not just the fact that it's a very, I mean, it's basically word for word because it is an audiobook. It's very loyal. Yeah. But Neil Gaiman himself serves as a narrator, which is interesting, a really interesting choice because, you know, obviously there are things that visually you see in these panels in a comic book or a graphic novel that how, how are you going to explain that if you don't have something like a narrator role? And they which, do it. <laughs> yeah. That, that shocks me. And 
I can't understate like Neil has just the voice of, a, of an angel. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. Like that man's <laughs> voice is like just perfect. You know, what's funny is I didn't know what his voice sounded like before I listened to this. And after the first couple of, I think the first chapter or two, I was like, who's narrating this? And I had to look it up and find out that it was actually Neil Gaiman who was, who was the narrator. Um, but it was, a, it was a great choice to do it that way because then you feel like you're still, you're not missing out on anything. Um, there's also really great like sound effects and everything. Sound engineering is, is really spectacular. So um, that's what I did. I listened to, to that. So, um, but I still feel like, you know, it's not quite the same as sitting down and reading it, you know, the actual like print version of it, especially because, you know, I was listening to it while I was, you know, working or, or whatever. And I can tell where there was, when we were watching that, my husband and I were watching the episodes, I could tell wherever there was like a very small gap in my knowledge or remembering of, of what had happened because my husband would be like, oh, so the question, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't remember, which means that I was answering a work email <laughs> while I was listening to this particular part. And that's, that's the only problem sometimes with, with listening to audiobooks while one works. But anyway, so yeah, I feel it's interesting, you know, kind of like three different perspectives here. Um, but I'm just, I'm so glad that I got a chance to know a little bit about the story before, um, before watching it. Um, but let's, let's, I guess, just talk about I don't know, the tone of the show overall, the feel of it. Um, we can, oh, and, and like I said, Grant is absolutely our, our expert here. Um, as I'll, just, as... I'll just throw in, I came to Sandman. I was a goth kid in the 90s, so I automatically went to the Sandman um, as a comic nerd. And it was one of those things that like, more so than Watchmen, more so than Dark Knight Returns, because I hadn't really come to those things at the time. Like, this was the work that showed me what, that medium was capable of like you get in there and um there's just a wonderful issue that is um and it's a story about dream inspiring william shakespeare to write a midsummer night's dream and uh conducting the play before um the fairy folk who the play is about uh with shakespeare himself and it won like uh it won some kind of very large award that had never been awarded to a comic book before. And it's just like, this, this is, this is the real deal. Like this is the stuff that um, really, it, it both, it made Neil Gaiman, but the Sandman also like, it, it made, <laughs> Neil didn't just make the Sandman. The Sandman also made Neil. It's a very interesting kind of um, um, relationship between the two. And it definitely was very formative for me because you don't just have like these classic characters like Morpheus and, and the Endless that you're dealing with. You also have the goddamn devil <laughs> and uh, a, a way the devil had never been treated before in fiction that I can recall whatsoever. Um, and you had these just wonderful characters um, from mythology. Like they get into the Norse gods as well, like Loki and Odin and Thor later on. And um, all of these very strange demons and you have John Constantine Hellblazer in there for a, a half a second um which you know that that got adapted to Joanna Constantine for the series but I'll let you go back let's talk about the actual tv show um the tone of the show uh go for it I mean I if if 
I would say if you haven't watched it, but again, why would you be listening to this if you haven't probably, <laughs> but it, it, it really is, you know, I've seen, there have been so many reviews and, and stuff out there, videos, what have you, breakdowns that have really just said the same thing that I would say, which is just, it was phenomenal. Um, strictly speaking, let's, you know, at first talk about, you know, it looks great. Um, it really encapsulates a lot of this, the huge expansive, like the dreaming where dream obviously rules, that's his realm, is just big and gorgeous. And I think just really, and then they also, you know, again, not having actually read it, but like seeing it referenced, like I know that there are certain panels from the comics that were like, they adapted those to the screen as well as I think they possibly could. And I think they, you know, probably did it on purpose that way. Um, and I really liked the aesthetic feel of it because again, like there are times where it just does look like big and dreamy and gorgeous or uh, really terrifying like hell. But then there's also these shots that remind you that like, this is from a comic book and a graphic novel. And we wanted to pay homage to that specifically because it is such a great medium and such a valid art form, I think. Vanessa, were you gonna say something? Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I. I just thought it was beautifully shot. Um, and I, I wanted to just quickly interject. I saw an interview with, and I, I'm going to be terrible with these actors because <laughs> um, I, I didn't pull up a list of who all's in the show, but uh, the, the person who plays Morpheus, <clears throat> they did an interview. Sturridge. Tom yes. Sturridge. Yeah. Warm Sturridge, yes. And uh, apparently they used a lot of practical effects and tried to limit the use of CGI which I think is a, a great choice because I think sometimes CGI can be a little much, especially on a TV show rather than on the big screen. So I appreciate that. I just, I love the, the mood of it. Um, and I love how each episode seems to have its own tone depending on the subject. So yeah, I just, it was, it's gorgeous to watch regardless of, you know, the plot and the acting, which those two are also top notch. Yeah, there's yeah. this, there's this sense of, so, First of all, I'll say I, I had actually seen someone on Twitter say that the Sandman was excellent, but they have no idea what it was about. <laughs> and um, I responded to that person and said, it's about stories. It's not just about dreams. It's about it's about stories themselves, like the, the, the idea of story as a as a whole. And so when you see each episode, each episode has its like it, it, you may think that it's a clash of tones or you may think that it's perfectly married um, because that's that's how the the series was like there might be like I said there's an issue about Shakespeare and then the following issue might be about metamorpho sidekick element girl you know like it it went all over the place and each of those were united by storytelling and stories and dreams because the idea there is that stories are just an extension of dreams and they even say, you know, like within the dreaming is contained all of the novels that ever existed and all of the novels that never will exist as well. Um, Grant, that means your novels are in there. Yeah, my <laughs> the ones I haven't written are there too. Um, so it's, it, and I think he was kind of inspired by an old Velvet Underground, he's, he's a huge Velvet Underground fan, but um, there's, a, there's a Velvet Underground lyric about the Prince of Stories that walk right by me. And I always think that's probably where like the, the germ of what became Morpheus came from. Um, but you have like one, like your first episode is about an Aleister Crowley-esque magician back in the, in the 20s or the early 1900, 19th or 20th century. Um, so it has this very like Gilded Age feel to it. 
Um, and then the following is in the dreaming. And then another episode after that is uh, one of these episodes is in hell. You know, like it's it's very much like you're going jumping from one thing to another to another. And you're united by dream, but also this concept of storytelling. And his kind of foundational, um, the, the foundation of the story itself is can this endless being who has been a, a strict monarch, can he change over time? Does he change? Is he always going to be the same? And that's the main question of the series as it goes on. You'll see, you'll see with, with things with, I think Sturridge did, did a very good job in kind of going from um, this very strict personality uh, who's very rigid uh, rule follower. You might think of like a Stannis Baratheon type um, from Game of Thrones and uh, and then also showing a very soft side at times uh, and ro a romantic side. He's a very Byron-esque character. I mean, he's like King Goth. He was based on <laughs> Peter Murphy from Bauhaus back in the day. Um, but you can also see like the Robert Smith, the cure element to him as well. Yeah. yeah, I I love that idea that, you know, it is all about stories and it's about how, you know, the the episodes themselves. And this is something that I did see discussed here and there on Twitter where, if you weren't familiar with the source material, or even if you were, that some people, and it wasn't necessarily a criticism of it, and I wouldn't call it that either, but you know, it does, when I was listening to the audiobook anyway, the audiobook, because it was still set up very much like an audiobook where it's like, here's this chapter, here's this chapter, here's this chapter, and you do know that they are all connected, obviously. You know that there's you know overarching story between it, but it did make me perceive it and this, is, this was just my perception, as a little bit more like compartmentalized than the way that they ended up presenting it in the show. Because, and I, Grant, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the whole thing with the Corinthian and Dream yeah. isn't really, it doesn't yeah, really come up. It, yeah, it's, it, they made, so one of the adaptational choices was that they made the Corinthian more of a season long, like big yeah. bad, rather than, um, in the original comic series, he was an escaped nightmare and he catches up with him eventually. It wasn't just yeah. like the Corinthian had engineered all of this, but right, in this right, it's right. very much like it, it, Corinthian engineered everything that happened in the first season for the most part. Yeah. And I personally, like I said, that's, that's just how I, that was my perception of it. And I had to kind of like let go of that because at first, like in the first episode or two, especially um, after Dream is captured, and he, and then the Corinthian shows up at Burgess's house and tells him like how to, and I'm like, wait, no, this isn't, this isn't how this happened. Yeah. <laughs> and then I kind of had to like remind myself yeah. that like, they're doing this as like connective tissue to yes. like, you know, yeah. because again, in the audiobook version or in the, the graphic novel version, you know, there's kind of like, there's dream is captured, then dream escapes, then dream has to go, you know, he goes and collects all of his items again. And then, you know, and it's just like, it felt step by step, story by story, yeah. you know, a little bit more like in one box. Like a next building, box. It's very much yeah. like you're building a block at a time. Whereas, so a, a good example might be as an author, uh, I'm going to write a chapter at a time, but then I'm going to go back and edit it once I have the whole thing, mm -hmm. because there might be groundwork that I need to lay for later chapters in earlier chapters. And I think yeah. that's, that's what Neil never got a chance to do doing issue by issue back in, back in the nineties. Yeah. So he's he's making adaptational choices, not just for um, the TV viewing audience, but also having the whole in mind. Vanessa, having no, you know, 
concept of that necessarily or, or knowledge of that uh, before watching the show. Did that, I mean, did it work for you the way that they, you know, were kind of setting everything up and kind of, you know, like Grant said, making Corinthian like the, the big bad yeah, of it, the season? It did. And um, I'll say, you know, the, the episodes, they all felt like kind of a contained story, but I did appreciate that there were threads that continued throughout the entire season. Um, so I think that worked for me. I was just going to like compare it, you know, the change to, and I will ask you, Grant, how you felt about them making this change. Because when you guys were talking about it, it made me think of the stand, the new version where they had flag kind of, it seemed like they had him at the lab leak, like he was responsible for it, which I thought was a terrible adaptational choice. Um, so I, I think, think we, I think we all hated that. <laughs> yeah, we all hated it. This works better for me, but like I said, I, I wasn't familiar with the story beforehand. So as someone who knows the story, I would love to hear what you think, Grant. Yeah, I actually, I think it was a smart choice to, uh, first of all, you get Boyd Holbrook in this role and he's just chew, <laughs> chewing scenery, to put it mildly. I, I see what you did yeah, there. Yeah, I see what I did. Um, <laughs> And I mean, that's, that's one of the most fun things. Like I, I, with the stand, I'm glad you brought up the stand because in in the past we've discussed um, how much I like Randall Flagg as a smiling villain and like that, that kind of jokey. And I think the Corinthian kind of fits that a little bit. Um, I mean, also having teeth for eyes is a thing. (laughs) Um, So he is smiling a lot, but uh, yeah, to have him as a this kind of connective tissue, um, as this like thorn in the side of the Dream King, you know, like I think it worked it worked very well um, in uniting, like going from this gilded age all the way up to the present, and all of that, all of all that was entailed by that. Like he's just trying to escape and trying to live, and this is the only way that he can do it um, by ensnaring the dream king and and trying to destroy him in the end yeah I, I, to me sorry go ahead vanessa I, I was just saying it made sense to me um where as opposed to the stand where that choice did not make any sense because flag was supposed to be just an agent of chaos and not the instigator of everything that happened and i liked it much better that the fuck up pardon my language was due to man's own incompetence and not some supernatural villain and w- What's what's also interesting about that is is the Corinthian is one of the more popular characters that came out of the Sandman. Um, in recent years, they've kind of resurrected what they call the Sandman universe in, in um, comics, but to be curated by Neil. He hasn't been writing them, but he's been letting other writers like into that play box to play with the toys. And the Corinthian is currently the only one with an ongoing series called Nightmare Country, and it's very good. <laughs> so yeah, I like the Corinthian a lot. And it's funny when I was listening to the audiobook version, the first episode that he that you hear him, and I don't I don't remember which one it is, but I was like, I know that voice, like, and I was pl- constantly playing this game with myself of can I figure out who the actor is without googling. And within like a few minutes, I was like, that is Riz Ahmed, and I love him as an actor. And I was like, Oh my God. Yes. I did not realize that was him. That's great. He did such a great job of making him so creepy. And so yet, so that smiling villain thing is just, uh, he was so good at it. It had me rooting for the Corinthian, which not rooting necessarily, but it just, it really did. Um, at first I was only, you know, Oh, I love Riz Ahmed. So I'm just, I really like this character, but then 
the more that you, the more that, that you see the Corinthian and the more that you kind of learn about what he represents in the story, um, you know, in, in terms of wanting to be more than what he was made to be, even though it's not really a good thing that he wants to like, you know, break out of his, his box and, and kill people for fun. Um, but, you know, more to the point of, again, what it represents. Um, but it's, I, I if you, if y'all don't mind, I would love to just spend a couple minutes talking about the Corinthian as a character, because um, you do kind of get a sense of sympathy for him. Um, and the, and the comparisons to Randall Flagg, I think are good. Um, I don't know if we really end up feeling bad for Randall no. Flagg, but <laughs> you know, uh, overall, I think the Corinthian is, it's one of those villains where you do kind of feel for him a little bit. And I don't think, I don't know that we get that as much in the show adaptation because I think again, to continue with that, uh, he's the big bad of the season and he has to be the villain and da da da. There's like a few lines at the end that he says to dream. Um, I can't remember exactly what they are right now, but he's basically, you know, kind of trying to say the same thing that Galt says to him at one point, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, I want to be more than what you made me to be. Um, you know, and you do, you kind of feel bad for him, but, yeah. um, yeah. That's what, yeah, that's where I was going with it. And so uh, I find it interesting that I'm not familiar with Boyd Holbrook outside of this, but I find his choice of how he performed the character very interesting because so in the comics, Lucifer, who is played by Gwendolyn Christie in the adaptation, is very clearly based on David Bowie. And I felt watching the Corinthian that this is kind of a Bowie character. This is kind of like, I'm thinking of like the hunger um, where he's in sunglasses the whole time. Like he, he has this kind of smile and, and a really bad drawl. <laughs> and of course, like Bowie can't really speak in a Like if you watch like Twin Peaks Firewalk, he tries to talk in a Southern accent and it doesn't work. Um, but you put sunglasses on him and I, I felt like that's what Holbrook was trying to channel here. And he did a really good, really fantastic job because he walks this line between am I am I trustworthy because I'm using you, Rose Walker and, and Jed Walker, or am I going to end up eating you in the end? And it, it balances because he is very likable. Like he he has Jed Walker with him because he's a likable guy. He's not just like in the comics, he just threw the kid in the trunk and he, he kept him there, you know, like it, it was very much more horrifying. In this one, it's very much more um, a, sympath a sympathetic or likable character at the very least. Yeah. Vanessa, what, what do you think about the Corinthian as, again, show only, you know, what a, did they, do you think they were successful in, in making him a, at least a little sympathetic or empathetic? Um, I don't know that I would call him sympathetic. He's definitely entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> able to watch um and it's it's funny i know i keep cross-referencing other shows and media but um when we're talking about you know this wanting to be more than what your creator made you to be it makes me think of westworld and like the hosts you know they're stuck in these loops all season one and then they you know break out of them and um they go on killing sprees but you still kind of feel sympathy for them you know because the humans are so awful um so I guess maybe a little bit, but you don't quite see the awfulness of the humans as much in this story as you do in Westworld. So it makes it a little bit different, but yeah. I don't you? Well, I mean, yes, to an extent. But we, we, went to a we went to a serial killer convention. I know. <laughs> so yes, there are plenty of awful humans. 
but anyway um but yeah I just I really enjoyed him. he's a great actor um and just you know, very charismatic and entertaining so yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with him moving forward when they recreate him yeah and I was I was very excited with um actually having an episode based on collectors because that is one of the top five absolute favorite single issues of anything ever like one of my very favorite works of fiction um i I'll, i keep sharing it but there's a an image of just serial convention and you feel the <laughs> i love that i love that <laughs> and what's a serial convention without any cereal <laughs> you're just like whoa guys <laughs> i know it's funny um what i will say is that uh just quick quick side note about boyd holbrook he was he was in logan grant which i have I'm yeah sure was uh was he oh was he, he was Pierce? also yeah i believe so Donald i don't remember Pierce, the character's maybe? name but he also had sunglasses on most of the time and he was like you know and i think it i think um oh my gosh our friend joanna robinson uh from yes. from variety had a tweet about before the series started, but it was just, I think it was just a photo of him promotional still. And she was like, just put Boyd Holbrook in sunglasses and let him work because he's just, <laughs> he is that good. And she was right. And she was right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, he was, Boyd Holbrook was fantastic, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And Vanessa, I love your point actually about Westworld and about how, yeah, you know, the, the characters there and the Corinthian are, eager to break out and do maybe not good things but I think it's like okay let's look at the larger point here like yeah it's not good that the Corinthian wants to like go out and kill people just to kill but was it actually not a great action taken on Dream's part on the creator's part to create something that was very narrowly intended for one purpose which is just to be a nightmare and to not allow to not allow someone or something to be more than than you think they should be. Um, keep, an eye, keep an eye on that theme throughout the entirety of the story. Well, me. and it's it's funny because Galt, another nightmare, mm -hmm. she leaves the dreaming, but she only wants to be, she kind of wants to do the opposite of everything that Corinthian does, where she wants to just be a dream. She wants to be good. She, like, you know, how she's holding Jed. And I, this is different than in the in the source material as yeah. well, I think, right? Yes, it is, yeah. Because Jed isn't being held by her, but- um, Yeah, it's a, it's a different uh, couple of nightmares called Brute and Glob. Yeah, but it's just, it's interesting that, you know, they weren't subtle about it. They showed us two nightmares who really did want very different things for very different reasons. And, and in and both you cases- had, You also had Fiddler's Green who wanted to just be a person and yeah. sit there and read G.K. Chesterton, you know? Yes, <laughs> but in all of those cases- Lucifer, Lucifer even, who wanted to be more than what God created Lucifer to be, so. Yep. Keep yep. an eye on that one. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, I, I do love that as a recurring theme though, you know, because it is, and it fits very nicely into, Grant, what you mentioned about how Dream starts out as like pretty rigid in everything you know, his beliefs about humans and his beliefs about himself and what his role is and everything. And it is only gradually over time that that starts to change for him. Um, but yeah, it's- And they know, don't just... make him, they don't make him a wholly sympathetic character. He's our right. hero, but he's not, he's very, very flawed hero. Yes. There's, <laughs> uh, there, there is something that I saw where somebody was like, 
Well, just wait until everybody finds out, you know, people who don't, who haven't read the, the source material, wait till they find out why Dream condemned Nada to an eternity in hell, mm-hmm. um, because it's not a good reason. Yeah, it's he just, does not, he's not a nice person. No. <laughs> I'll, 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 often, I'll often fall on the knife of Morpheus as a gigantic asshole. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he, he is. Um, for you, Grant, sorry to interrupt, guys. Um, as we're talking about this, it's making me think of like Morpheus in a, like a godlike role. And I'm thinking of like God of the Old Testament, like very vengeful, like rigid, you know, uh, punishing versus the Jesus of the New Testament where, you know, has sympathy for humanity and wants to redeem them somehow. Am I like totally off base or am I? I don't think you're off base at all. I think you're you're right on target. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's funny because you would think, you know, having spent a hundred years in captivity, it's kind of, it could have gone either either way once he got out of there. Um, he could have, you know, been forgiving and understanding and said, hey, you know, humans are flawed and, you know, or could have gone the way that it ended up going, which was I'm pissed off and, you know, want to kind of, if not take it out on humanity, at least it just really further soured dream on, I don't know, again, like he just, he really kind of went right back into his narrow role of, I am dream of the endless. Here's what I do with dreams and stories. Don't stay out of my lane. Like, don't, don't fuck with it. But he evolved though as well over the, the season where he does seem to come like have some more empathy and some, you know, sympathy toward humans. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a big part of that I think is um, what ends up being my absolute favorite episode and also my favorite issue in the audiobook, which is his um, conversation with death. And with her reminding him that like, we don't exist, like we, we exist because of humanity. Like humanity does not exist because of us. We didn't create them, you know? And I think that it's, you know, I don't want to go too off the, off the rails on this one here, but, you know, I feel like dream and maybe like desire and some of the other endless, like they have this thought of like, you know, we can do whatever we want with humans because that's what our role is. We're the endless. We're, you know, we're great. And death is like, actually, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't even exist, which just really kind of gives you like a, whoa, like mind blown kind of moment. Yeah. And it's very hard to argue with any other episode being better than the sound of her wings. Like you watch so good, that, you just so fall. Um, <laughs> you you have both dream, recognize, like death, <laughs> throwing bread at him and, and helping him recognize that, that the endless serve humanity. Um, which desire clearly doesn't because desire is desire. She's there to, or I'm sorry, they are there to manipulate. Um, but you also have his connection to humanity in the form of Hob Gadling, who is this guy who made a deal with him to not die over the course of like six, seven hundred years. And to, just as a just as a classic kind of Old Testament God experiment, it's very it's very similar to to the Job God and Devil like. Um, wager, yeah, you know. I thought of, yeah, yeah. It's it's very on the mark there, um, and you see both of them go through the emotions of developing a friendship over that time because they they're the only ones who can understand. And you have that um, common understanding through empathy, which is the root of stories. 
I just got to say, I, I loved Hobbes' character. I thought he was fantastic. And I, it, even the fact that he went through so, like such awful circumstances at times, but it was still like, I don't want to die. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gets. And it made me think of, and I, I know I keep doing this, sorry, but Tyrion, um, where he's, you know, death is so final, but life is so full of possibilities. Um, I, I absolutely love that. So yeah. How, yeah. how low can you bring this person then? And he still doesn't want to die. And it's very also very interesting that he, so Gaiman wrote a couple of death uh, series. Um, short, they were they were limited series back in the 90s. Uh, one, I think, was the, the High Cost of Living about a boy who wanted to kill himself and was kind of in love with death. And uh, after spending a day with death um, as a person, uh, comes out of that and no longer wants to die and it's very you know like a, it's it's a, a similar kind of idea yeah and just it speaks to that how strong a survival instinct can be but it's funny you say that like you know after spending time with death like doesn't want to die but this death in the show it's like it's not maybe that you'd want to die but you're kind of okay with it <laughs> she's yeah. like very you know warm and inviting and like hey you know this is just kind of a transition to you know another plane or whatever and it's you know it's not as final as maybe you think it is or it gives you a chance to kind of see what's beyond this reality which it's, such, it's such a wonderful juxtaposition to the normal depiction of death as the reaper um you know like i think of the seventh seal which is one of my favorite movies where death is this grim reaper figure looming over the looming over the characters that you're playing chess with and trying to outrun and this one is is very warm and very inviting and and is funny and fun um and cute i i, I mean kirby howell baptiste come on extremely yeah. cute yeah. <laughs> um, uh, she was excellent in a good place so like i knew she was going to knock this out of the park um and it's it's a very reassuring idea of death rather than something to be maligned or to be afraid of. Yeah, I, that's one of my favorite things about that, the way that Gaiman wrote it, because, you know, Vanessa, like you mentioned, it's not necessarily that you would like want to see death, but like if you have to or when you have to. And, I, and this is something that death herself just understands, like, it's going to be so much harder on not only the person dying, but on death as well. Like, it's going to be so much harder if it's like this, you know, this big thing about being afraid and, you know, you don't want to be afraid at the end of your life and death gets that. And she knows that if she, and I think she says it in not so many words to dream where it's just like, they want a kind, they want like a smile. They want like a kind word, you know, because it's just, and that, and I was thinking about how you know, death says to, to dream at one point, you know, I, I kind of had to start approaching it this way for my own sake, because it was just, it was getting so hard. Like I wanted to walk away from it, but I realized that I had to start looking at it differently, basically. And like the bravery that that takes to like, start looking at your role, which is ending someone's life in, in the, the kindest, gentlest way possible. It is, it's just like a revolutionary way of, of, looking at it kind of and it's it was a nice oh go ahead I'm sorry. i was just gonna say it was a nice counterpoint to the previous episode where you see how just horrendous and awful death can be <laughs> and like the most gruesome way possible and then you see it and you know the total opposite of that not only do you see that in the episode before but we we go to hell like mm -hmm. we go to like we hell exists in this universe and 
therefore heaven also exists. So what are all these people doing in hell? Because there are a lot of people down there. <laughs> yeah. So I think it, it'll be very interesting to see, hint, hint, um, what, what is the, I don't know, cosmology of, of belief as people go to these different places because it's not just like there's not just a hell there's not just a a heaven there are other states of being um depending on your belief structure or where you like death takes them to some place called the sunless lands and you don't know what happens there Mm -hmm. um but you can kind of assume they must get get sent along their way to some place right um and it's very interesting to know like the worst possible outcome of this before we even meet death. Yeah. Um, before, so I definitely, it sounds like, it sounds like the sound of her wings is a favorite episode potentially of all three of us, or at least one of uh, a favorite episode. But before we get into like favorites, which is how we'll wrap up our, our talk today. Um, it, uh, any outstanding, like, and Grant, I'm going to direct this to you at first, but only because you're so familiar with the source material, any other like adaptational choices, narrative choices that you thought either worked really well or didn't when I doing was, the- I was interested in a, in a couple of things. One, um, the the 70s Sandman um, in, in uh, I forget exactly which episode, but it's, it's the one with Galt, I'm sorry. Uh, you see Jed Walker, uh, taking on this role as the Sandman, a superhero, and in the in the comics, it's Hector Hall. It's it's Lyda's husband um, who's in that role, and Hector Hall is very famously like the 1970s Jack Kirby version of Sandman um, that Neil uh, like incorporated into the story very quite ingeniously, if if, if I can be honest. Um, and it was interesting to see both those characters, Hector and Jed, individually while still changing their circumstances where Jed is the one envisioning himself as the Sandman. Um, And I was uh, like, they also closely connected Lyda with Rose, which I don't think that was, that's a show invention um, because Lyda is a continuing character along with her son. I don't think they actually named the son in the series, but he has a name. Yeah, and I was wondering (laughs) if I'm right, if because I was like, that's Daniel, right? Yeah, that's Daniel Hall, yeah. Yeah. And there are some other things Lucian is an interesting um, adaptational choice because if I remember correctly in the series, it's very vaguely um, hinted at that Lucien is actually Adam. Um, and Eve yeah. is another character that lives in the dreaming along with Cain and Abel, yeah. also Old Testament characters. Um, so again, like Vanessa, very on point. Um, and you also had things like uh, John D. Um, him and his Ruby were a classical uh, comic book reference. Again, uh, back to the 70s, the Bronze Age. Um, it was a character named Dr. Destiny. Um, I could see why they didn't want to do that because you have another character named Destiny who is one of the endless and you don't yeah. want people to get confused. Um, but mainly in these adaptations, they just refer to him as John D. Um, which is fine. It's, it's a good choice. Um, so it kind of disconnects from the larger uh, DC Comics canon that it was rooted in. And then, of course, you have Johanna Constantine. Oh, Constantine. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, I just keep telling myself. That I know. I have to keep telling myself. But in the comics, it actually is Constantine. Nobody yeah. just ever yeah. says it. 
And uh, so originally in that issue, it's John Constant, John Constantine, um, but his his de- he's a descendant of a Johanna Constantine that we also see in the Sound of Her Wings, um, and like. Uh, I think the casting of Jenna Coleman, incredibly strong. The cast of the, the whole thing is great. Yeah. Um, uh, she may have been the best on-screen Constantine that we could we could hope for in this series. And there's talks of spinoffs, you know, like, and they, what's weird about that is they're like resurrecting the old John Constantine series on like Peacock or HBO Max or something, which is why they couldn't do that character. I did read that something about the rights. To, they didn't have the rights yeah. to, to John Constantine. They have, they have the rights to Joanna because Neil created Joanna Constantine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, um, like I think all of these things were very smart adaptational choices. And I've been very interested to hear like the, the Vanessa point of view uh, coming in show only because I'm kind of curious. I don't know if this is a su- successful adaptation or not because I'm so in the source material that I'm like, of course, it's it's awesome. It's great. It's like directly from the page. What what else could I want? Um, but to, to hear that other people are reacting to it with, without um, being familiar with the source material, I think that speaks to it being a real triumph for, for Neil Gaiman who had like prevented many times uh, poor adaptations of this uh, from from coming out. Uh, so at, at at the point where like he could be involved and he could help it along um, and serve as an executive producer, I think uh, it's been a, a real boon for you know just being being a fan of that series. Yeah, and I, I will say I, I I'm it's definitely a successful show, and it's hard to say if this if it's a success, successful adaptation not knowing the source but it sounds like coming from you grant that you think it is um so i think it is as well i it's enjoyed it on its own merits but it's also inspired me to want to delve into that world and so i think that is kind of the hallmark to me of a successful adaptation if you want to actually go to the source material after it's all said and done then you know that to me is you know that's a success so yeah i've been directing people to i i try to direct people to the comics and i i mean sometimes people like petra um, from Watchers on the Wall, like she is not into it just because of the horror elements, and that's fine. But she could still watch the series and be engrossed by it, which was also great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I highly recommend the graphic novels, and I highly recommend the the Audible drama as well. Yeah, absolutely. I like I said, it's just it's not that I it, it just for me I just have trouble reading that type that particular medium. Um, which is why I'm so grateful that Audible did such an incredible version of, of the audiobook and in such an interesting way, like I was saying earlier, you know, they have a narrator, Neil Gaiman himself, for God's sake, who kind of, you know, can step you through anything that you feel like you might be missing by not looking at the actual panels, you know, the drawn panels. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, as far as adaptations go, and again, this is solely coming from, you know, only listening to an audiobook version of the first like 20 issues or whatever, it was phenomenally done I mean it just I feel like everything about it and I know I mentioned this earlier but like the casting was also spectacular I feel like everybody was just so in they just I feel like everybody just really got their roles and that's everyone from Tom Sturridge's dream and Vivian oh gosh I'm gonna mispronounce her last name Anchimpong as Lucien I totally bought her as yeah. as Lucien I thought yeah, absolutely. It, it just yeah and, you know, we mentioned Jenna Coleman as Joanna Constantine. It, it just, and I really loved 
um, Matthew as the voice, or Pat Oswald <laughs> as Matthew. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, it's just like. And, well, in addition, Mark Hamill is Pumpkinhead. Mark Pumpkinhead. Mark Pumpkinhead, yeah. Which I think is just a great character to just be like this, like, scarecrow kind of guy who's yeah. just rough and tumble janitor of the dream. Grumpy old janitor with a jacqueline in for a head. <laughs> Who should we get to voice this? Mark Hamill, of course. But, like, if you listen, like, you, you hear, like, Mark Hamill's Joker almost like in that kind of delivery but yeah it, I I have absolutely zero complaints honestly about about the adaptation the only thing like I said that I mentioned before was like at first I had to be the one to let go of well that's not how they did it in the you know what, in, yeah. what I listened to <laughs> with the Corinthian kind of thing you know but it they, they did it so well yeah. that it just it, it was not an issue at all but, sometimes it it doesn't the, like being a book reader you don't have to be all snobby and like you can I know you know you could just be like hey that's a good choice I, I like that I so know. it's very it's, interesting to have that like I said that's my that that's my thing though it, it was not that was nothing that was at fault about the adaptate the adaptation process um and Neil Gaiman being so closely involved on this like he sat in on all the auditions and stuff and this is the only like the last thing that I'll say the only thing that I'll say, because I don't want to give it so much oxygen, is that, of course, there are people who are complaining that it's woke because there's a lot of LGBTQ plus representation and there's, you know, you have a non-binary actor in Mason Alexander Park playing a, a non-binary character. <laughs> <God's sake. laughs> that context completely, so yeah. But it, I mean, but I, I've seen, you know, oh, there's, and the the gender flipping of Lucien and, and people complaining that there's jo- Joanna Constantine without really knowing the backstory to that whole thing. Um, but the, you know, the only thing that I'll say to that is Neil Gaiman understood the assignment 30 years ago, which is yeah. that like, this is not, first of all, it's a fictional world. Like really, this is what you people are going to complain about. But secondly, like, yeah, it's a fictional world, but it's reflecting true, true life. I mean, that's what authors are influenced by. And it's just, I loved seeing. The, you love seeing it come to life that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the people who com- have complained and who like Gaiman is very good at destroying those people on Twitter. Like, he- yes, that's where I was going with it because one of my favorite, my, f- and I tweeted about this last week when I was watching it, like, cause my favorite corner of Twitter right now is people like tweeting directly at Neil Gaiman and like trying to like take him down over adaptation, adaptation choices or casting choices yeah. or whatever. And it's, they fail miserably because Neil Gaiman is like, basically like, go fuck yourself. Like, and I think. <laughs> and those people like clearly didn't really understand the original yeah. series. Did they? It's the same sort of um, people who complain about Rage Against the Machine going political, you know, right. like, it's the same, same sort of thing. Yeah. But like there was a, t- I can't remember which role that it was that somebody was, oh, it was Lucifer. It was casting um, Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn Christie as yeah. Lucifer. And someone said, no, Lucifer is meant to be um you know mail or whatever and I think I think this is what it was but Neil Gaiman then tweeted back and was like oh I'm sorry how many auditions did you sit through in order to like find the the perfect actor for the role not but the also, perfect man or woman but the perfect there, actor like <laughs> there was somebody who pointed out to to Neil Gaiman that um it was based on David Bowie and yes and yeah. Neil responded uh I'm I, this is gonna be some sad news I'm, I know but David Bowie is dead yeah, so he wasn't available. Or something. He wasn't he was available like, yeah. at the time, so we went with Gwendolyn instead. And I'm sorry, but Lucifer was an angel, and last I checked, angels weren't human. <laughs> so yeah, like, genderless. In, like in the 
in the in the series lucifer is genderless like right. you 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 see it he, he pulls down the pants like yeah. i was gonna say my, my only complaint about having Gwendolyn Christie in that role is that we didn't get to have more of her. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I mean, I'm oh, coming. That's going to come. Yes. Oh, I just, I want, she just has a, like that quiet menace down so well. <laughs> it's like you really want to love her, but she, she could also scare the crap out of you. So I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. That like, we'll, we'll, we'll move into a, a quick discussion of, of our, some of our favorite things um, about the, the series as a whole. And one of my favorite things is actually the adaptation choice to do um, that, that particular episode of Hope and Hell where we have Dream and, and Lucifer having their existential battle about, you know, what I am anti-life, what are you then Dream Lord, which just gave me, gave, gave me chills. I am a dire <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Love that, by the way. I was like, that is absolutely- I remember going cool. back and rereading that and seeing that after I had read Game of Thrones and was like, oh, wow, that's, that's directly from the comic book. Yep. But I just, I love that the whole thing because in the graphic novel, it's actually, it is the, the demon Gordon's own yeah. who has Dream's helmet and they have, and I actually don't remember exactly how they, what their little existential battle is because I think it was the same. It was the okay. same, same sort of game, the, the yeah. oldest game, quote unquote, that which was is sort of a, a game of one-upsmanship. Like that's pretty much it. <laughs> that was a, that was an email answering five minute blank in the in the audiobook for me but um yeah no I just I loved that episode so much for that scene because like Gwendolyn Christie on one side Tom Sturridge on the other and it's just it looks beautiful and it's just this really lovely you know story about what trumps hope which is nothing hope yeah. endures and what is hope but stories and dreams and oh god I'm which is crazy. also it's also ironic that they're doing that in hell because mm -hmm. of the famous quote abandon all hope ye who ye ent yeah. enter here yeah yeah but yeah it's just ugh, oh so good um that was probably my favorite scene personally but i think my favorite episode is the sound of her wings yeah. just because it's so beautiful i love the you know, lessons that death is trying to impart to, to dream. I love that they gave, you know, I, I didn't think they would leave out the hobgadling storyline, but what I really liked about that is, and again, Grant, I could be wrong, but so correct me here, but like the original graphic novel, because it was written in, I think 1989, right? Yep. So each meeting was on a year that was 89. Yeah. Right. So I think though, does, does dream actually end up finding Hob? At the in the new... comic, yeah, yeah. He, okay. he finds him in the same location. I don't think there's a new one. Okay. Um, so it was very interesting to see that twist at the end of this episode where he had bought that the the bar and yeah. that's how he knew how to find him, which yeah. I, I again thought was very smart for having the timeline change. Yeah. But I just that that whole thing with Hob and Dream is just a really I love that storyline. Um, I love that they fit that in. Um, and again, that, that whole episode, episode six is just, I mean, it's beautiful in like a haunting way. It's sad, but it's also, you know, the lessons learned kind of thing is like, it's uplifting, you know, seeing death portrayed as like something that's more like warm and friendly rather than something to be afraid of. I, I just hundred percent, my favorite episode of the season. And I'm I'd glad like to they, didn't, they didn't focus on the grief of the people left behind yeah. so much, especially yeah. the mother. Oh, I, I, yeah. I think I could have dealt with that very well. Yeah. In the audiobook version. And I know too, that in the graphic in novel, the comic, yeah. very briefly, it switches to the baby's perspective and the, you hear, you 
the and in the audiobook talks. version, the, the baby says to death, wait, like, this is all there is? And like, I don't know who the voice actor was for like just those couple of sentences in the audible version, but like, it is- It breaks you. It oh absolutely my God. breaks you. Yeah. It is just heartbreaking to hear like, this is all I get. And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm afraid so. And there's just nothing to be done about it. And like, oh my God, I'm going to cry like thinking about it, but I, it's just, yeah, spectacularly there, done. Episode. There's a, another line from Death Somewhere in the series that is, um, you get the same thing everybody gets. You get a lifetime. <sighs> um, yeah. Oof. All right. Well, let's, before we get too sad, <laughs> um, Vanessa, what was your favorite episode? Same one. <laughs> okay. Um, I think you and I are very much aligned on this. Um, for, you know, the same reasons pretty much. I love how they were able to tie in his conversation with death to his friendship with Hob. And like, that's kind of what gives him that better, like a, a better perspective on humanity and um, that, that closeness and sympathy for humans. I think that's, that's wonderful. And then like, also like you, I love Hope and Hell. I love that whole battle between Lucifer and Morpheus, just so well done, so visually stunning, um, just just great. So those those were my two favorite things. And I, as as a horror fan, I will say I also did really appreciate Twenty Four Seven, although it was tough to watch at times. But it was it was so good. It was just such a, like a like a quiet, just yeah. on the edge of your seat. Like what's going to happen? not yeah not just like gore for the sake of gore but just done in like a very disturbing way yeah I, I love that issue and that that episode specifically for i think he's making a commentary on authors here and storytellers because so betty is a writer um the the waitress uh who is trying to put people together but also uh, she compares herself to like i might be the next stephen king or something like that and um, you have John D come in and he is writing these people like characters. He's making them fight and fuck and die. Um, and ultimately uh, to no avail, like it's, it's, it's just a brutality sadism. Um, but is that just like Neil's view on authors or like, is it more about finding that empathetic center of those characters? Yeah. I, I mean, I also really did like the 24-7 episode. Um, I will say it wasn't my favorite only because, and again, this isn't, this is not a fault with the adaptation of it, but when I was listening to it, it was, it felt more. Hour by hour. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. They, it's almost like drawn out more, you know, and like the, the actual physical torture yeah, part takes place over, over many hours, hours yeah you know and it did seem a little bit like it all kind of happened at the end and then dream shows up and the episode is over and you know john d is is uh, back in his cell or whatever and it just it had a different feel to me that it's not that i didn't like it or didn't appreciate it it's just i kind of preferred this is weird but i kind of preferred like hearing narration of you know over many hours they're chopping off fingers and they're you know having sex with each other and whatever it was just a different, it was very, very, very eerie. And I think my only possible smallest, tiniest quibble with the adaptation of that to the episode is that I didn't, I didn't get as much of that. I felt like it was a little bit more, I don't know. It was a little less subtle. I'd agree with that. 
I'd agree with that. It was very, it was as subtle as a hammer. Well, yeah, I mean, not, <laughs> not subtle, hand. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, do we have a favorite character? The Corinthian, I, Corinthian. I, I, it's I mean, there. it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> Corinthian is, is pretty amazing, but I, I mean, I also love death. Um, even though we only that. got to see her a bit, but I also love Dream. And at the at the end of his battle, I think is when it happened. Or no, not the, it's the end of his battle with Lucifer that he walks away like he's strutting. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm, I'm I'm the goth king of the, the, dreaming, the swagger. You know, he's got his helm back, and he's just, and they he's even do the it Robert in slow Smith motion. Hair, like... You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, Dream. I think is probably could probably be anyone's favorite character, um, but. Yeah, I think Dream, the Corinthian, um, Death. I really loved Death, uh, Desire, and I can't wait until we see yeah. more of them. But yes, um, Vanessa, you have a Mason favorite character? I agree with those. My favorite human character is Hob, though. <laughs> I know he's so sweet. Yes, I love. I, like I said, I love that episode, I and mean, he he was a you know a really good part of it. Um, but yeah, I agree with yours um, as well. Um, and I'm yeah, I am looking forward to see more of Desire. Just such kind of like a a fun villain. From what yeah. I've seen so far, so interested to see where that goes. What was funny is when speaking of desire, just real quick, you know, my husband and I watched the final episode last night, and he, after it was over, I was like, "Well, what did you think?" And he's like, "Oh, I mean, it was amazing, but I don't really understand the whole thing with desire." And once I was like, "Well, desire fathered Rose," and he's like, "Okay," and I was like, "Which technically makes Rose related to Dream?" And he was like, "Okay," and I was like. And the endless can't spill their own blood. And he's like, oh, I feel like they maybe could have made that a little bit clearer. I feel like it wasn't the like slam dunk that I feel like maybe it is in the comic, but I, I, I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think doesn't Dream say something about you were trying to make me a kinslayer? Yeah. I think that's really all we get. In there's, the yeah. There's more to that, believe me. Yes. Yeah. And I know that we'll see more of that, but yeah. it's just, yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's kind of like a final point because I know we need to, to wrap up. Um, and if there's anything else you guys want to talk about, let me know. But I would just love to hear from Grant as our resident expert, predictions or, you know, ideas of where you think they're going to take us into the next season. I mean, especially with the prominence of Lucifer in the final episode. Keep an eye on some of those themes of uh, definitely Lucifer's revenge um, because uh, it's not what you think it is and it's it's uh, one of the most ingenious um things that gaiman ever came up with but also it's very reflective of the dream king himself and um i would keep an eye on those themes of change and being outside of your um the parameters that were defined for you very that very Westworld um thought it's it's there's a lot more coming that way yeah, I'm, I'm interested now to like go further. And I know that Audible has done um, the second- At least two more, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think there's there's a second one that's already completed. I don't know if they have- Second and third one. And then I th I'm not sure if there's a fourth. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I am I have like a week until I can claim my Audible credit for the next one. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did buy the Audible version as we've been talking. <laughs> yeah, I- Go. <laughs> I'm telling you, I cannot, I cannot possibly oversell it. It is, it is very good. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Grant, for lending your, thank your you, expertise. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. And, uh, um, hopefully we'll be coming back with some more episodes. I know Sam's going to be out for a bit, but, um, hopefully I can 
come up with some stuff to talk about in the next few weeks, months, uh, with some guests maybe from time to time. So we will see you guys back here soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks, listeners. See you next time. listeners for joining us for this episode of Needful King. You can find the podcast on Podbean, SoundCloud, as well as Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon podcasts. And please take a minute to give us a rate and review on the platform of your choice. You never know, we may read yours on the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Needful King for news and updates. And we'd also like to credit Ryan Creep for the use of his wonderfully airy original composition for our intro and outro music. You can find him on YouTube at Ryan Creep. We hope you enjoyed this episode, Constant Listeners, and be sure to come back next time.